0: Welcome to episode fourteen, budget breakdown.
1: I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from our Chicago.
0: I am your co-host Andrea Parker,
1: and I'm Jim Staros. Today we've got a great guest about student-based budgeting, Dr. Stephanie Farmer. She is an associate professor of sociology at Roosevelt University. But before we get to that, we got a couple things we want to talk about. Some big wins we have at CTU.
0: We always win. We always
1: win. We just, we're just we just going to tell you about a couple of them. I mean, just think we're always winning. These always. are just the ones you're knowing about. Right? That's right. It's pretty cool. We got one, the big one. There's a big one that we had. Tell us. I'm going to tell you about it. So a uh, teacher a number of years ago was inappropriately released from the school. As you can imagine, being targeted by principals and administrators. You know how that goes. Oh, definitely. Well, he finally won his appeal, won over $200,000 in back Woo-hoo! pay. I know, right? Gee, that's what we do here. He's about CT. to have a ball. I know. He's killing it, right? <laughs> he's killing it. It's going to be great.
0: One check. One check. check? that be fun. Some. Can you imagine getting a check that big? Plus, getting your job back. No, damn. Mm. That's cool. I might need to file a grievance.
1: I think you should. Let's do that. (laughs) Let's go right now. And we got some other ones. We got some other little contract wins. People that were, uh, I know a bunch of people had been denied personal days. Mm. I don't know if that happens in your building ever or not, but not yet, but
0: I've in previous schools, we have been the threats of personal business days.
1: Threats always good too. Mm -hmm. We've had a few administrators that have done that and, um, but it goes to grievance, and these people are getting their money back, you know, a few hundred dollars there, a few hundred dollars there. But it's this is the point of what we do. We enforce the contract. We've got a good, strong contract. But now the real point is we got to make that stronger. What, what should we do in the building to make our contract stronger, do you think, there, Ms. Parker?
0: Definitely have a strong PPC. PPC. Uh, make sure that you are connecting with your delegate. If there's anything um, that you feel like you're being targeted by your principal, don't keep it a secret. No, don't make hide it Make yeah. it Yeah,
1: let everybody know.
0: Let everybody know. Yeah. So you all can come together. Um, don't walk in fear. I've outlived many principals and I think Jim mm-hmm. is the king of <laughs> outliving principals.
1: <laughs> there's been a lot of principals in my school.
0: <laughs> so the principals come and go, but you as an educator, you're gonna stay and you have to work hard right. in that building and you have to be on one accord. So definitely have a strong PPC and have a strong contract um, committee where you know that contract, like the back of your hand. Don't just depend on your field rep before it even gets to the field rep. Make sure that you know the contract and make sure that your principal is respecting the contract. And don't you violate it. No, don't do that. Because if you violate one section of the contract, they, the principal going to think, oh, well, you might as well violate all of them. So yep. don't, don't, don't give any place to the principal. Right,
1: and the PPC is a strong place to advocate for because just like Ms. Parker said, sometimes the principal threaten you with not uh, paying a personal day, the threat of a grievance, that also works as well. Sometimes you don't even have to get that far. They just want to know, are you going to actually do it? And if you are, they're going to back down.
0: Yeah, because sometimes principals don't even know, they don't even know the contract like nope. that. They just throw things out there and you just tell them what's up and they they back off.
1: I One time a principal told me he passed out, at the beginning of the year they passed out those uh uh, dress code things You mm, ever had that?
0: every year. Yeah. And yes. I walk
1: in and I said, I just told him, I said, you know, you can't do that. And he's like, yeah, I know. And he just wow, wanted to see said, if I yeah, was going to push knows. back. Yeah. Wow. He was just testing because he was a new principal, wanted to see how much the delegate would push back mm. on something simple like that. It's true. And I guarantee you, if I didn't come in and say something, he'd been like, oh, we can do whatever we want here. But then he found out. Oops.
0: Oops. So, just in case you don't know, a PPC is short for a Professional Problems Committee. I, I mean, I, Professional I'm, Problems Committee. And Jim cannot stand I do not that, time. Like that name. So, if you out there have a better name for PPC, we should have then a naming party call us for that. So we can um, hear your ideas or I your suggestions. I think Crystal
1: called it the Power to the People Committee one time. I, I like, like that. It. That was better.
0: But we got to put it in our bylaws we, and things should, like that. We should so, change, so, change that up. Yeah. So, so again, the PPC is short for Professional Problems Committee. Again, Mm-mm. where you any you are an elected body, you're a delegate and you're an elected body to represent the school and you come to the principal or a school administration, um, how often you desire, it could be twice a month, once a month, and you talk about the issues affecting your school, contract issues co- affecting your school, because a lot of times we don't just want to go straight to a grievance it should be your last resort, right. but you want your principal and school administration to understand the contract and um, places where they may be violating it yep. um, or overlooking some things. And we want to make sure that there are some, procedures in place so the school community work well. So that's why it's important to have monthly meetings like this monthly union meetings so you can be able to get um, information from the people in your building and you bring this back to the principal. We don't want the delegate to go in alone. We want the delegate to have a team and know that everybody is standing in solidarity.
1: Right. It's like local organizing at the building level. That's right. If you're having a problem, somebody else in the building's having that same problem. We get together. That way it doesn't have to be like, well, Ms. Parker said yeah, this is a problem and then it's principal going to target Ms. Parker. Exactly. We don't we, nobody wants to target Ms. Parker like nobody. that. And we don't want to do that. Don't
0: come for so me. Don't
1: come for her. What are you doing? <laughs> Get out of here. So we're going to have all that kind of power when we come together as a group. This is any of those issues in the building. We've had stuff about cleanliness in the building. I just mentioned the dress code thing. Um, any kind of uh, crazy stuff working that you got. Working after pay, school without no pay, uh,
0: Yes, working after yeah. school. Any of those types of things.
1: Miss preps, uh, uh, yes. any of these types of things. And these are things that are winnable very regularly, but the principal needs to know you're going to push back. Because if not, what else are he or she going to do? They're going to do the job they want to do. And if you allow them to take these preps, take this, take that, they're going to do it. But they're also back down because they know they can't. So the PPC is there to make sure that the people in the building, the teachers and the students are protected because we have this contract there to protect students too. And if you want to do best by your students, do best by yourself and be part of the PPC and fight that way.
0: We are here with Roosevelt Sociology Professor Stephanie Farmer. Nice. She's going to be our guest today, and she's going to talk about her study on student-based budgeting. Um, many people in Chicago hear teachers talking about student-based budgeting. They do. We talk about it all Chicago the time. the Chicago Teachers Union saying that it's unfair. It but now we have somebody outside of the union. The expert. And somebody that has no connection with our union who did a study um, out of their own passion of um, justice in our city. And think that student-based budget is not the best thing for the city, but we're going to dive into that. And so we just want to, again, welcome today, Stephanie Farmer.
2: Thank you all for inviting me. I appreciate it. I'm Thank you for, for
0: being here. It's
1: going to be fun. Yes, it A is. A fun rodeo. That's and, what we
0: say. <laughs> and she's going to just really just go there today and just really just let um all of us understand what student-based budgeting is, how it affects our schools, our staff, mm-hmm. our communities, our city, and the impact that it has. So I'm excited. Me too. All right, Jim.
1: All right. <laughs> so Dr. Farmer here is an expert on school budgeting and particularly student-based budgeting. And I was hoping maybe you could explain to the listeners what the difference might be between student-based budgeting and other types of budgeting that people might have for a school district.
2: Well, you could talk about that previous model that CPS had employed where um, it was an automatic allocation of funds for each school. So each school would be allocated, say, eight staff and teaching professional positions. The central office was going to cover those expenses. Okay. Then the central office says, we're going to change this up and we're going to adopt a more charter School model like financing structure where you're going to get your money based upon the student headcounts of each student that attends your school. Okay. So instead of just getting um, like the financing from central office, in the central office is going to pay for your staff and teaching positions. This uh, CPS changes it up and say, now we're just gonna give you a budget. We're gonna cover three positions for you, and then you're gonna have to take that budget and figure out how you're gonna wow. spend the rest of that money to determine what your school wants and how you're gonna pay for it. So now the budget is going to be based primarily on student headcounts. And then that's where, like, the trick, like, how it gets a little tricky here. Okay.
0: Right, because the district now basically essentially only pays for the assistant, one assistant principal. A clerk and a counselor. Exactly. Um, because, but because of the special ed laws that were violated. Right. Um, now, such office now paid this year, started back paying for special education teachers or diverse teachers. Mm-hmm. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with having student-based budget? What's wrong with having this headcount process as a way of school funding? Because a lot of people say it's a fair way of funding.
2: I get that a lot, right? So people are just like, yeah, it makes sense that you'd want to give like the same amount of money for each student that attends a school. And I'm like, but hold up. Now we got to think about what happens inside these schools. Mm -hmm. And also like the, like what's also happening inside the neighborhoods too. So if you look, I mean, you have like the set of experts that will like say, Hey, look, you know, lower income students have a whole bevy of needs that higher income students don't have. Mm -hmm. And so uh, lower income schools need more resources to build up their, the, the, what's happening inside the schools to, mm. ma- to, to meet the needs of lower income students. Um, and I would say too, that, um, my, our, our research, the main problem that we were identifying is that how do you get to a school that has low student headcounts? Low enrollments. Okay. I'll just go for low enrollments here on out, right? Um, The thing is, is that, like, once you start financing a school based upon low enrollments, you're going to, like, then have schools that are going to have, like, either big budgets or small budgets. Schools have fixed costs, right? So like right. you have to keep the lights on, you have to keep the heat going and that heat doesn't depend upon the number of students that are in that. It's based upon the building itself. Right. So you've got some fixed cost, but now you have smaller budget to meet those fixed costs. So then how are schools going to deal with those like smaller budgets? Well, you start trimming out where you can and one of the ways that you trim out is that say, oh, younger teachers or newer teachers rather, I should say that cost less than veteran teachers. Right. So mm-hmm. we're going to get rid of those veterans veteran teachers because they've acquired, you know, like a high, they, their salaries are higher than newer teachers. And now you've just stripped the people that have accumulated the most knowledge, the more like the like more enriching relationships with the students, with the parents, the family out of those schools, the schools right. that need those kinds of supports. So um, we were thinking about like, well, how does a school gets, gets under enrolled? Now we're, I'm going to connect it back to like CPS's policy, earlier policies where they're saying, hey, look, let's roll out the school choice program. And school choice was like, we're going to give parents right. and students more choice by giving, like offering a bigger menu of schools. You have selective enrollment, gifted, uh, career academy, STEM programs, charter schools, right? And when they roll out all of these schools, um, one of the things that you give more, you give people more choice, but they started to roll out these schools in areas that were like losing populations, swift declines of population. So you look at like CPS's charter schools, they like, they open up 108 new charter schools between 2000, and 2015, right. 62% of those schools are in neighborhoods with the 25% are higher decline in student population. So that becomes a context in which now you have under enrolled neighborhood schools. Mm-hmm. And then they switched that up in 2013, 2014 and say, hey, now you're going to have to fund yourself based upon your student headcounts after we just rolled out all of these new schools in your neighborhood that have declining population. That's crazy. So what happens to that neighborhood? Right. That neighborhood's already, if, if a neighborhood is like in a population decline usually that's correlated with lower incomes, higher unemployment rates, right. higher poverty rates, also higher unaffordable housing. Right. So right. now the neighborhood's distressed and you add one more element that distresses the neighborhood, these underfunded schools. And, right. and, and 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 that's where I think that like um just kind of neglecting what's happening at the neighbor lo- a neighborhood level and saying, hey, we're going to finance school in this very fair way of giving every student the same amount of money. Doesn't necessarily achieve these kind of public good ends that we would hope that we could use schools for.
1: One of the things you mentioned in your your article that I liked a lot was this distinction between a business model and a public good. I I did too. And I actually (laughs) put it in bold in my Mm. notes. So I I know people love getting quoted back to themselves, but I want (laughs) to use a quote from your thing. Um, You you said since the 1990s, Chicago Board of Education has adopted various reforms to make Chicago public schools work more like a business than a public good. And I was hoping you could explain what the difference is and why is that important in this context, particularly.
2: When you operate a school like a business, you can one. the first measure that they did was say, hey, we're going to give you consumer choice. So we're going to give you more choices between schools and we're going to empower parents to act like consumers and you can uh, consume the school that you want to go to. The next kind of logic of implementing that business model um, is to say, hey, now we're going to make everything the same. Everybody gets the same amount of money to enter into that education market. And then we're going to finance those schools based upon what consumers are demanding. So if school, if if consumers are demanding your school, you're going to get a bigger budget. If consumers aren't demanding your school, you're going to get a smaller budget. But people don't attend schools just because of like some kind of choice, like this kind of like abstract choice. People go to schools on very concrete and specific conditions. Right. Is it close to where I live? Is it close to where my mom works? Is it close to where my cousins are going to school? Right. These kinds of real concrete and, and specifically ways that people make choices. Um and 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 so when you have these neighborhoods that are depopulating or maybe have more uh, choice than what like the 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 number of sc- of, of, of student or like school age population that exists in the neighborhood would really demand, you're going to be stretching those resources thin. Across the system, right, right, and then then once you stretch those resources thin across the system, you end up with schools that then have to like, and this is what we've seen in schools that like because we have small budgets, we can't like hire two second grade teachers. So we're going to put 40 kids in one class or alternatively we're going to get rid of like this history program or history focused classes because those aren't being tested on and we don't have the resources to pay for that teacher or we're going to get rid of these other kind of enriching programs. So then you strip the school down to its bare bones. Right. And, and and that's the kind of the point I I end up on the paper is just like saying, how is like stripping, how is like offering like a, like a range of like bare bones schools, a real choice. Right. And then, so that's why, like I'm saying, like, when you go to, like, what the public, and I was trying to get to, like, what the public good model is, is that... we should have a, a standard in which we want all schools to provide um, enriching programs, enriching curriculum. Um, we don't want schools to have to choose between uh, like newest teachers or their veteran teachers. Um, schools shouldn't have to make those hard choices. Right. We should want a standard in which all kids can have the resources they need for quality education as opposed to then just having it like you're going to get punished if you don't choose the right, right school.
1: So it's one of those things. We don't want schools to be like a business where they're competing against each other. They should, there should be a standard at which they all are at so that we can all be successful in whatever neighborhood we are, which will then help some of that issue about depopulating those neighborhoods.
0: Yeah, I don't understand how it was a choice because you have selective enrollment, the magnet, all these schools, but students don't just automatically choose them. Mm-hmm. Like you can right. choose them, but that mean you're going to get accepted. Like the only school That's you can really too. get accepted into besides your neighborhood school is a charter school. You don't automatically get accepted into a selective enrollment school right. or a magnet school or a baccalaureate school or a military school. But you do get accepted into charter school. They take basically everybody, even though they may say it's a wait list. But you right. can get into those schools. A lot of the times you can get into there just apply and they'll accept you. So I was like, when, it's, when they say choice, like how many choices do you really have? Nice. Cause I, I think that most people who go to the charter schools are people who may be trying to get into like enrollment schools for high school and they don't get in. So I can have a choice to go to a charter. I feel like school choice is like not really real. Cause I feel like the school still chooses you to a certain degree. Like you just can't choose any school you want to go to in CPS. Well, it's like, to that
2: like what we're doing is we're treating schools like it's, like it's a choice between coke and pepsi mm-hmm. and that I believe that coke does make a superior product I'm seeing your pepsi product I, right I there but that's you know yes. uh, i bet to have do a do pepsi machine <laughs> in the
1: building we're gonna do something about the pepsi machine <laughs>
2: But let's just say for instance that the majority of Americans find that uh, that Coca-Cola classic products are more delicious than the Pepsi-Cola products, they right? Are. They and are. then eventually like either Coke like either drives Pepsi out of the market or like shortens its like it's breath within the market. And, and and in some sense that's how we're treating schools that like you know you're choosing between either like the Coca-Cola formula or you're choosing between the Pepsi-Cola formula. But schools don't just function as like a consumer product. Schools have these presence with in communities in terms of being community resources, community right. anchors. That's true. Um, and, and I remember going through that, like you know, like going to those like public meetings during those two, the 2012, 2013 school closures, right? Right. One of the things that always struck me was how much people identified with their school. Right. That strong kind of like family connection people had, or just like mm-hmm. that strong sense of identity. Absolutely. So it plays multiple functions as to who we are fundamentally as human beings, as well as in the communities in which we live. That Coke exactly. and Pepsi just frankly doesn't do for us. Right. You know, and so, but, and also we think about like schools are like supposed to be the fundamental basis for us developing our humanity, preparing us for the future, right. preparing us for the, you know, jobs and career pathways, what have you. Right. And then to say, okay, if you choose this school, then you get all those, all, all the goods. If you choose this school well, we're going to strip down what you get, what we're going to offer you to its bare bones. And that to me is like, that's the difference between the consumer model and the uh, public good model. Right. The public good model will say, we're going to try to offer a baseline of student supports, curriculum, I mean, enriching curriculum, everything that we want for every student in all schools, not just like um, the school, like the school that you choose, exactly. basically.
0: I agree because when you have that business model, you, people tend to get competitive And so I'm just thinking about schools are becoming more and more competitive, public schools. So, for example, when my son was in high school, he, you know, he went to Hyde Park. He graduated from Hyde Park, which is a high school on the south side. And so once he got in there, I would say two weeks after school started... Disney, which is a Northside school and a you know popular school, a popular brand of school, sent him a letter saying, "Oh, uh, we know you're in school already, but we have an opening. Come to our school now, because Disney is a popular you know name in the city. Many kids will." be in a school on the south side, which is already struggling with resource, struggling with students. And now you want to take a student outside of the school in which they're in, and you're saying, hey, come to my school. I didn't take that. I mean, I didn't, you know, he didn't go there, but some kids at his school left High Park, which is already struggling with student population, mm-hmm. and went to Disney, which already has a already a nice amount of kids. So it's like, let's pack the schools out, let's get them big as possible. Because I don't even know if it's a cap on how many kids you can have at a, at a school and it's like you are taking kids out of one school area right. and trying to and, tra- and, and make them come to another area it was no bussing or anything like that That's crazy. but come to my school leave right. your school and come to mine
2: and, and and those schools have an incentive right because if their budgets are mm. based on student headcounts, You're going to try to rack up as many student headcounts as possible, disconnected from, well, what are the best classroom conditions that we want for our kids? Do we want 40 kids in a classroom because that gives us a big budget? Or do we want 25 kids in a classroom because that's the best model for education for those kids? Schools now have the incentive to put those 40 kids in that classroom you yeah. know, exactly. and that's not, I don't think that's optimum, right. you know, for like no. what we want for our kids in Chicago. Right.
1: And even for those schools that are being very successful and, and doing well and and have all the right programming, it's still a perverse incentive for them. So the, the whole model is bad, whether you're at the top or the bottom of the spectrum, which is goes back to the whole public good thing and that it should be a benefit for all. So there isn't an incentive yeah. to go from Hyde Park to Disney. Because if we're all funded the same right. and we have similar curriculum, Correct. there's no reason to leave the neighborhood. Exactly. You know, there is a great neighborhood outside everybody's window and I can yeah. see it in my own community and mm. it reflects me because I live in the community.
2: Correct. You know, I mean, also we, I think if we talk about like, you know, the the neighborhoods that are most impacted by these low budgets that are being produced by student-based budgeting are the neighborhoods that are losing population, which neighborhoods are losing population. Chicago lost 250,000 African-Americans between 2000 and 2016. Mm -hmm. When people would ask um, the people that left, what were the main forces driving you out of the city? Yeah. Crime, economics. And in the top three also was that there was in insecurity in terms of I don't know if my school is going to be able to stay open. Um, right. You keep cutting and cutting and cutting and inside cutting. my school. Yes. It's these, And we've created these situations where our schools are increasingly insecure, particularly in African American neighborhoods and then we turn around and we adopt the student-based budgeting model and say, oh okay, $250,000 of you left, but you know what, now we're going to fund schools based upon student headcounts. Mm. So this is automatically then going to in- disproportionately impact African American schools." in African-American neighborhoods um, relative to the other communities that exist in Chicago. And that's why I do think that like often, you know, we want a smoking gun of racism in terms of like that this has to be a deliberate policy of like, oh, um, how do we undermine conditions for black people? But you can also do it in institutional ways that just simply neglects the real impacts of how these policies are going to play out. You could say, oh, well, putatively, it's all fair because everybody gets the same, but we don't all live in the same neighborhood conditions. So we're not all going to get the same.
0: And you're not going to get the same because if you are funded based on headcount, if I only got a, 200 kids, I may not get a librarian. Whereas a school with 500 kids, exactly. I'm going to get a librarian. So we're not going to get the same thing. Yes. You're going to get less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you get less, then I don't want to go to this school and I want to leave this area yes. or right. leave this city. And again, the school ends up getting closed because now it's under enrolled. Right. And it's
1: almost impossible for that school to build itself back up. Right. Because if I've only got teachers there to provide the bare minimum requirements in a high school, who's going to go there? Like if if you don't have these special programs and these fun things that the kids want to do and these cool electives, which you can't do if you've only got two or three teachers in a department at the high school level, they're never going to be able to recover.
2: And how are these neighborhoods going to recover too? You close the neighborhood schools and that neighborhood looks like, okay, they've just simply stripped all of the resources and the public supports for those neighborhoods. Why would anybody want to move and th- move there and, and then like help to sustain that community? It's right. giving the people an incentive to move out. And then right. when people move right. out, we're like, oh, why are people moving out of Chicago? Really?
1: Right. Well, maybe can you talk a little more about that cycle? Because you mentioned that again in the paper a little bit about these stressors in the neighborhood. you got unemployment and crime and uh, housing conditions and underfunded schools, and they all feed off each other that, you know, if if I'm struggling in the community and I can't send my kid to this community, I'm going to have to leave and go to a different community. And then that leads to businesses not being able to be successful in those communities and stuff like that. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that and how those all kind of feed together.
2: So I have to explain the world really now? Yes.
1: (laughs) And and if you can do it in five minutes, that would be great. Thank you.
2: Yeah. More than enough time. (laughs) Well, I mean, so... You, you can trace, you know, you can trace it back to like how gentrification pushes people out of their neighborhoods, how public housing uh, demol- demolition push people out of the neighborhoods um, in the central area. Right. And then people m- either move outside of Chicago altogether or they move to like the further like periphery of the city where it's like, f- you know, further away from the job centers. And then you're absolutely right, though, is that like I think over the last 20 years, we've created conditions that have been very favorable for business it's wonderful to be in Chicago. If you're rich, you have lots Mm. of green spaces. You have lots of recreational places. You have all the school supports because we're going to build a gifted program in your neighborhood. We're going to build a selective enrollment school for your kids. Mm -hmm. We got you, but for everybody else, Oh shoot, we don't have the money. And we can't necessarily provide a baseline of quality of education or a baseline of quality supports for your school. And as a consequence, we've we've defunded the neighborhoods um, we've pushed people out of the city. And then, of course, you're absolutely right. Like once then you have the situation where you. Um, you have like decline in like the investment that we make in neighborhoods, people move out of the neighborhood. And then of course, then you don't have the kind of disposable income that's in the neighborhood, nor are people investing in the housing. But it was an, kind of a countervailing like force in all of this is that housing is increasingly becoming more expensive in these neighborhoods as well, That's true. which is just like, that just boggles the mind, you know, that the right. people feel like there's a chokehold on them, right. you know, and, and, and what are the policies that are getting us out of this? Right now, I love that the CTU is taking uh, student-based budgeting head on. I think that this is like, if we can transform that policy, we can maybe redirect these schools to give them some more stability so that way people would want to stay in the city. But you're right. It's not only going to be transforming student-based budgeting. We have to think about, I don't know, something like rent control or providing more affordable housing for people to stay in the city. Um, And also to make these schools thriving places too. But like with affordable housing, I mean, the lack of affordable housing, not only does it drive people out of the city, but then it forces families to bounce from one location to another yes. location. And then that creates, um, uh, that creates unstable conditions also inside the schools. When teachers have a high student mobility rate, I mean, some of the, the schools that we were looking at in the study that had like the, um, lowest budgets, like the lowest student-based budgets also had some of the highest student mobility populations. What I mean right. by mobility is just students that have gone homeless or have had to leave their current domicile for another kind of domicile. And so then what happens is that if they bounce from school to school, they start out at, at like different places, different points in the curriculum. Right. And then for teachers that have to maybe deal with multiple students that have, that are like coming from one school to another school, it's like, you have to like think on six different levels at all times or else some students will be left behind are not like th- their needs will not be adjusted. And we don't have enough money inside those schools to provide adequate supports for homeless students because we've stripped down their budgets to the bare bones. Exactly. Right. So I think like then when CTU takes on like the affordable housing, that baffled me too. Like during like the strike when everybody's like, why is CTU talking about affordable housing? And I'm like, because neighborhood stability provides school stability. It's just that, it's just that easy.
1: That's
0: pretty clear. And so if this continues to happen the student-based budgeting cycle, mm. schools are underfunded and they're closed down because they're under uh, underutilized, mm. if you will, or they're under-enrolled. What's, what's going to happen? What's going to be the end result?
2: I've been thinking about the same thing myself, right? <laughs> because... Rom messed up when he closed those 50 schools Mm -hmm. all at once because he created a political nightmare for himself. Like that's the one kind of touchstone that many people went to in terms of like how, as an example of how Rom doesn't care about the neighborhoods, he Mm -hmm. only cared about downtown. Mm -hmm. Um, Lightfoot might find herself in the same conundrum, right? That we we have, because we've enabled all of this like charter school proliferation that has contributed to the under-enrollments in neighborhood schools, they are trotting out this under enrollment kind of narrative and you're like so where are you going with this right like and i don't know i i i don't know if they're going to go like in resort to the kind of like this kind of school closure policy that like daily adopted where it was just, like we're going to do eight here 10 there not all at once right but it was like kind of a more slower rollout than mm-hmm. that kind of like brick wall of like we're just going to hit you at once um yeah What do you think? I'm curious. What do you guys think about where she's going with this?
1: It's hard to say. I mean, like she campaigned as somebody who was really pro school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really interesting. You know, we talked about this during the strike about how different candidate Lightfoot and Mayor Lightfoot are. And um, there were a lot of teachers that supported her. She said she Mm -hmm. was uh, against charters. She was against school closing. She was for a, um, elected school board for equity for the, uh, she was against using the TIFFs for the Lincoln Yards. And then she's just not. And I'm like, wow, that was quite a bit of turnaround on almost every one of the major points I liked her for. Um, and I don't know where she's going with that because it doesn't seem like there's a coherent policy from her Mm -hmm. on what she says she wants to do versus what she's doing, she wants to say she's doing the right thing while doing the wrong thing, um, and even jumped into it when she was not even married yet. She jumped into the whole "I support the Lincoln Yards." She wasn't even married yet. She got elected, but uh, Rom was still married. Just leave it on Rom. Why would she you didn't even have to mention say anything. that? I yeah, know. just be quiet. <laughs> even if you love it, just like shh, like oh, it was Rom's fault. Like no, she cared about it that much that she jumped in with both feet. Let's give them, you know, what mm-hmm. was it, total two point something with them in the seventy eight. Um, Two point four, Yeah, you know, 2.4 billion. And, and, then she can't come up with 600 million for the CPS. Is that what it was? So we'll give the billionaires four, almost four times what we'll give the kids.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: that's a sad priority, but it does seem to be weird where she is.
0: Yeah, it's scary. I don't know. I just think about the bigger picture um, of what can happen as I just think about the privatization of schools. Like, you take you can you constantly closing schools and the more yeah. schools you close, the less choice I really have. Yeah. yeah. So you're talking about school choice, but if you continue to close schools down just because of headcount, right. then I have very little choice. So I think about um the Inglewood the new Inglewood STEM school in order for that school to be open, four right. neighborhood schools in Inglewood were closed down. Right. And so I have less choice. And so right. if I'm in Inglewood, yeah. I want to go to high school in Inglewood, that's where I gotta go. Right. I don't have a lot of choice. Right. So and it is just scary for I feel that this school closure and student-based budgets are going to lead to less student choice and more charters and charters again, have the option of charging you for little things here and there. A lot of times people think that charters are actually totally free, but they have fees and things like that that Mm -hmm. you don't even know about. And I know some students who couldn't graduate unless they pay certain fees and just more, it's just more things that we don't see in that world. And I just don't want our children to be subjected to that because they do have less choice. And because of some, Fail policy or unjust policy that went on just to be able to get rid of their choice.
1: Mm -hmm. And I also think last episode we were talking about the um, depopulation of black educators in CPS Mm. and you know because these schools that are are being closed are so targeted in the south side and the west side and that um, traditionally the schools had been taught by people that live within the community. So if that's the community you're in and they're closing that school then it's going to reflect more of those teachers from that community. And that's going to, you know, further, you know, hurt this, hurt the system and hurt how it's being run. And we're going to lose more and more, uh, veteran black educators in the city. And I think that's a huge problem in itself as well.
2: Yeah, I think the loss of the black veteran teachers is actually one of the undertold stories that's connected to student based right. budgeting. One of the things, of course, that we saw come out of like the school closures is that 88% of the schools that were closed were closed in African American communities. Right. African American schools tend to have a higher percentage of, of uh, black veteran teachers. So when you close the school, the like, teachers get shuffled, but some just simply say, I'm leaving this situation, I'm right. going to go into a more stable situation. Well, student based budgeting also creates instability inside schools. So when, um, when you cut veteran teachers and replace them with um, newer teachers, that's one way in which you're shuffling um, teachers outside of the school. Also, what we're finding is that people are leaving the school just because when you create these kind of, these, like when you create these like contracted budget situations um, and and you make the life more difficult for teachers and staff inside the school, some people say, I'm not going to do with this anymore. And I'm going to find some stability outside of this, like this school system. So there is a direct correlation between student-based budgeting and the loss of black veteran Mm -hmm. teachers inside CPS.
0: And not only that, they leave the school, they leave their community. They may have to leave the city. They have to go to the suburbs or Mm -hmm. go to another state to be able to find a job. Because again, teaching Mm -hmm. is not just a job, it's a career that black teachers have invested in. I have my master's degree in elementary education. So I'm invested in this field. So it's not like you just work in a job where you didn't right. go to school and had right. to take out student loans for it. It's a career. So if I cannot work in CPS, I have to find somewhere to work. And if I'm working in the suburbs and I have to leave where I'm living because it's going to be hard to commute so far, or they may have a requirement that requires me to stay there. I don't know, but that's also where you have middle-class people leaving a community and when you yes. have more and more middle class people living in the community, then you don't have businesses really wanting to invest in the community. And then it's it's yeah. it's a mess.
1: Right.
2: Yeah, it's just one more way in which we're undermining neighborhoods. Correct. While undermining the schools. I always say to my students, all my students are like, "Well, how can we have like, how can we get more resources into like deprived, uh, like underserved, like uh, neighborhoods?" I'm um, like, one of the fastest way you could do this is invest not only in the schools but also in the public sector workers. Public sector workers, they live in Chicago, right. um, they are invested in making Chicago a better place, yes, yes. and also you give them more money, they have more disposable income that they can spend in their Chicago communities. Right. You know, and like you just give money to rich people where they're going to do it. I'm going to put this in the stock market. So I'm going to take it outside of the city altogether. Right.
0: Exactly.
1: One of the other things I really liked about the report that you've got, that even if you don't understand the uh, the writing or you don't understand what they're trying to get at with the numbers, which I think is extremely clear anyway. The, the maps, and I really wish we had a little video thing right now. We'll put it up on our, uh, on the notes for this podcast so you can get the link to it. But the the maps are fantastic because it shows that every single one of these schools that's under resources on the south and west side and every one of the high resource schools is on the north side everyone in Mm -hmm. every different category you've got whether it's schools that are under resourced whether it's issues of poverty whether it's issues of whatever is going on in that neighborhood i think there's six different maps on there and they all if you laid them over each other it would it would be a mirror image of each other almost i think it's very powerful to see it uh, laid out that way
2: You know, one of the other things that like in the maps too, is that I think what some people like find like tricky is that they're like, well, look, maybe it's just that there's more kids on the North side and maybe there's less kids on the South side, you know, like the neighborhood is depopulated. And it's like when you actually compare the North side and the South side and West side together, what you find in these like low budget schools and the high budget schools is that the neighborhoods have the same percentage of student age populations that live in those neighborhoods. Mm. That was crazy. Only thing that's different is that the lower budget schools have more charter schools inside their neighborhood um, areas, mm. right. and so you have—you could say there's more choice on the South and the West side and less choice on the North side. And then people are like, well, that's great. Then that's, we're giving people more choice. And I'm like, well, wait a minute though. If this choice is leading to like, and this is what you were saying earlier that like, it leads to like these underinvested schools, then that's not really a choice for me. Right. You know, right. why would I want to choose an underinvested school or all alternatively, it's like creating the conditions in which this school is going to close. Right. But also I'm saying like, well, why did they choose, why did the charters open up in the South and West side as well? And it's like, well, maybe it was just more politically expedient because we did see that like, um, on the one hand, I do think like there's a justification for like, okay, like we, um, are trying to provide more choice so that way that we can like improve the conditions. So this is kind of a civil rights issue. And I, I'm really kind of sympathetic more to to those intentions than the other intentions Are like, well, we could just expand our market and this right. is the easiest market to expand in. Right. And, it, and it was disconnected from anything else that was happening inside those neighborhoods and also just like how those demographics were going to affect the neighborhood schools or alternatively, like they didn't care how it was going to right. affect the neighborhood schools. It was to their advantage if the neighborhood schools would end up underfunded.
1: Right. I mean, that was one, when I would argue against charter schools at different forums. One of the questions I'd always ask the, the charter people, I'm like, how many charter schools are in Hinsdale? How many charters yeah. are in New Trier? And why is that? Is it just that they are only needed on the south and west side of Chicago? I don't understand that. And of course, if I'm a parent and I don't understand this situation and I see a school that, as you said, is under-resourced, there's not enough staff and there's a brand new shiny school built by Rom or Daly or hopefully not Lightfoot, but who knows, um, sitting next to it, what am I going to pick? I mean, it's, I got to stay in the neighborhood. Like this is where I live. This is the easiest place for me to get my kid. I'm working a minimum wage job, not making enough money, which is a whole nother issue that kind of factors into this. The the low wage situation for a lot of these families that need multiple jobs to be able to just put food on the table.
0: And I think it's what you alluded to, Jim, is just talking about that's what the choice looked like. Oh, it looks good. It's a brand new school. It looks nice. but. Research shows that charter schools, most charter yeah. schools don't do any better right. than CPS district schools. Exactly. Some of them do worse and some of them have closed down exactly. as well. So what is the real reason that we are having more and more charter schools on the South Side? Is it primarily just privatization because I don't see yep. the real choice. Yes, it looks good and they market it as better and why are they? Why are CPS officials really marketing charter schools, especially new ones that haven't even proven themselves yet right. as high quality options. Right. That's the word they use. High quality high options. Quality and You option. are a brand new charter school. You haven't even proven yourself mm-hmm. yet. Yeah, you don't know. And that's a very scary thing. So right. why is this happening? And only
1: in certain communities. And only
0: in certain communities. You don't see them on the north side you like that. Mm-hmm. And that is unfair and right. that is not choice and they so fight to keep them out for me to have a proper choice as a parent as a student i should have quality schools to choose from yes you they should. all should be properly funded overfunded that'd be uh, neat that'd be nice but yeah. but you're pushing me to choose a certain way well let's be real too
2: about these like shiny new packages that these charter schools are coming in uh, a lot of those are debt financed who pays for that debt financing That money is coming from the CPS budget, right? Or it comes from the state budget, but together, then that means that the city and the state is right. going to say we're giving you guys money for schools right. so it looks but it's like for we're like funding. the shiny packaging of the charter schools and so then the debt financing takes a greater percentage of the overall operation funds that we have right. to operate our schools so now we have more money going to debt and we have less money for the and what's happening in frontline education and then of course because we have like this kind of scarcity and money for frontline education we're like so how do we allocate this and the way that we're I think the way that CPS is going to allocate it is like they're going through the student-based budgeting also in part to then like downshift like the political responsibility. Um, we're not going to take the hit for like, you know, chopping what happens in your classes or in your classrooms or in your schools. We're going to like downshift that to the principals and all the principals are going to take the hit, you know, for like having to make those kind of like hard budget choices, Right. you know, and in part we got to this hard budget choice due to charter school proliferation new school rollout, and then financing all of that through debt.
0: That's crazy. All on the backs of black children and black teachers. So mm-hmm. with all this darkness, this dark news Ooh, is being spread. Because yes. it's Please so do. dark. Sure, so. So, how do we, is, is there a way that we can solve this? Is this fixable? Is there a way where mm-hmm. we can have funding that is truly equitable and where African-American teachers are not fearful of their jobs every year and where African-American children are not fearful of their school closing every year.
2: Maybe it's because I'm not part of CTU and I'm outside of what y'all are doing. But I, you guys are my ray of hope in all of this. Are you kidding me? I mean, not only that you took (laughs) on like the affordable housing issue, like for during the strike, but now like student-based budgeting, student-based budgeting is not sexy. It's boring. People like, you know, like, oh, like their eyes glaze over when you talk about the (laughs) financing of schools. And yet it's so central in terms of like, how are we going to ensure that we all have, you know, high quality schools? Um, but it, because you, you all are making it an issue, and, and 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 the the Chicago Board of Education is finally responding, like they're right. having like all of these forums, right. um, community forums to talk about, well, what are the ramifications of student based budgeting, and what would be a more equitable funding situation? So it's the fight that it, like we're seeing progress because of your guys' fight, and I think like. Also, your guys's demand for um, the central office to fund the wraparound school, uh, sorry, wraparound services right. to fund teacher uh, teacher salaries to fund all of these kinds of like to fund the the the, the, the all the things that like uh, student based budgeting is currently funding, but bring that back into the central office like the previous um, um, uh, 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 budgeting process was. That that's where my ray of hope is at because I do think like the old process was more equitable. I think we could do a better job in demanding a, like a better baseline of of certain standards that all schools should be like raised to. But I think that's better accomplished by having the central office funded as opposed to doing student headcounts inside the schools. And you guys made that an issue and now it's being discussed in a public way. So thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Farmer for coming. We appreciate your outside perspective and I hope that our listeners are enlightened and will be more involved now that they understand what yeah. student-based budget it is and how it affects not just students but educators and communities and the city as a whole so yeah. thank you for yeah. your information Thanks it was very insightful <laughs> so come back again yes please <laughs> awesome. thank you to our faithful listeners and if you're a new listener for tuning in to our podcast Budget Breakdown please listen again yeah. and please subscribe if you have not tell a friend tell a co-worker tell a family member there you go you can reach us if you have any questions comments, concern, or want to be a part of the show call us 312-467-8888. 8, 8, 8, 8. If that was too hard for you to remember, I'll say it again. Say it again. 312 467 8888 8, 8. Jim, how else can they reach us?
1: They can also reach us by email at CTUSpeaks at CTULocal One They can also reach us on our website at CTULocal One slash podcasts. And they definitely need to share this with some of their friends if they have any. I you hope know, so. They better have some. Yep. Ms. Parker's having a birthday coming up, so she can find a friend there, too.
0: <laughs> Thanks for sharing.
1: Always. And just to remind everybody, if you want to get that great paper from Dr. Farmer that we talked about earlier, it's called Student-Based Budgeting Concentrates Low-Budget Schools in Chicago's Black Neighborhoods. It'll be available at ctulocal1.org podcast.